You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Lawson Flowers. I'm the student and family minister here at Redeemer. Uh, and uh, we are uh, just thankful to be here. Uh, it's my privilege to get to preach to the students every Wednesday night uh, for, in our youth group. Um, and then to periodically get to uh, get to share uh, with you guys as well. Uh, and so thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Uh, we are in a, in a series through the book of Hebrews. Um, and so you can open up to Hebrews chapter 5. That's where we'll be uh, this morning. When Pastor Jeff started the, uh, the series on Hebrews, uh, he preached, if you'll remember, his best sermon ever. Uh, which was where he just read the book of Hebrews all the way through uh, for the sermon. And so when he asked me to uh, you know, preach on Hebrews, I just thought maybe I'll do the same thing and preach my best sermon ever. Um, but I'm not going to do that. So as tempted as I am. Uh, but we will be in Hebrews chapter 5 this morning. Uh, and so as is our custom, uh, if you're able and can stand in, in honor of reading God's word, please do that. And we will read Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You can be seated. I have, uh, I have three children, um, a three, uh, five-year-old boy, a three-year-old girl, and a one-year-old little boy. Um, and something that I tell my older kids uh, quite often is that they uh, have deliberately disobeyed me in a certain way. And I tell them that they have, uh, you, you have deliberately disobeyed me by growing up, right? continuing to grow. Um, I, I tell them, you need to be little, and they just keep growing. Um, I tell my little girl that I never want her to grow up. I want her to be my little girl forever. And she says, Daddy, even when I grow up, I'll still be your little girl. And I hope that's true. Um, 
My boy, he just says, I, you can't stop me. You can't stop me, Dad. And I say, I'll tie a brick to your head. He says, that won't stop me. I'll keep growing. And, and he's right, of course. Um, I can't stop him from growing. And we'll talk some today about growth and maturity as we work through uh, Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, in this passage, uh, the author is introducing Jesus, our high priest, Okay, and this is a topic that he's mentioned uh, already in this book and one that will really take up the main argument of Hebrews uh, through chapter 10. Okay, so there's a, uh, a big chunk of Hebrews is about Jesus being our high priest and all the intricacies of that. We're, uh, we're going to see three things from this passage as we go through it. First, what is a high priest? What is a high priest? Second, how did Jesus become our high priest? And number three, a sober warning. What is a high priest? How did Jesus become our high priest? And a sober warning. So first, what is a high priest? Uh, we've seen Jesus mentioned as a high priest twice already in Hebrews in 2.17. It says, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In, uh, and then last week, at the end of uh, 4 and 4.14 4, through 16, we saw Jesus is our great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And so he can sympathize with us in our temptations, in our struggles, and we can always go to his throne of grace. Right? What a comforting uh, message that is. And in, in five, the author continues to talk about high priesthood. And so in verse one, um, he, he says that, that a high priest, so an earthly high priest, is appointed... Uh, is called by God to act for man in relation to God by offering gifts and sacrifices. So uh, the first thing about a priest is that they are appointed, right? You can't just turn in your, uh, you know, your high priestly application uh, and, you know, apply for that job and maybe get accepted. No, no, Jesus, uh, the Lord, God just calls you, right? Um, and Aaron was the first high priest, as it, as it mentions in chapter, in verse four. Uh, Aaron and Moses, he was the first high priest uh, in, in the Old Testament, and in, in the Old Testament, the, the Levitical priesthood, uh, and you can read about this in Leviticus 16, one of the most important things that the high priest would do is on the Day of Atonement, once a year, he would be the one who would go into the Holy of Holies, kind of the most sacred, the innermost part of the, the temple uh, where God's presence was said to dwell. And, and on this Day of Atonement, would go in there and sprinkle blood on the altar and in front of the altar to atone for people's sin. Uh, he was a sinful person, as the text says in, in uh, chapter two. Uh, so he would first have to offer a bull for his own sins and for the sins of his family before he went in. But then he would kill, uh, he, he would kill a, an animal, a goat, and would, would uh, sprinkle its blood, would go in and sprinkle its blood on the, on the uh, altar and in front of it uh, and to atone for sin. And then he would come out and he would put his hands on the head of another goat and he would confess the sins of the people on this day, confess all the sins of Israel. And then they would take that goat out into the wilderness and, and let it go in the wilderness as a sign of the people's sins being taken away from them. As far as the east is from the west, I've removed your sins from you, God says. And so uh, once a year in this ceremony, God dealt, this is how God dealt with the na nation's sins by the high priest, okay? So the high priest was a very important figure. We're, we're probably not used to thinking about priesthood uh, just because of our backgrounds, uh, most likely, but, but this guy is key, right? He's very important. He's the one person who can atone for the sins of the people on this day. Like, like if anyone else goes in there, they get struck dead. Like this happens. Uh, no one else can go in there. Uh, they, they die. The, the one high priest who God appoints is the one, the only one who can atone for sins. 
Okay? So, how did Jesus become our high priest? Second, how did Jesus become our high priest? The author of Hebrews brings out parallels between earthly high priests and, and Jesus, uh, and, and he'll continue to do this, as I say, throughout these next five or so chapters. But what he brings out here, uh, the first he brings out here in how Jesus became our high priest is uh, because God appointed him, right? Uh, and just in verse five, it said, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed, right? Uh, so, so just like Aaron couldn't appoint himself, but was called by God, so it was with Jesus. And the author quotes two, uh, two Old Testament passages from the Psalms, one from Psalm 2, 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and the next from Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, the first quote from Psalm 2 is, is one that we've already seen in Hebrews. In Hebrews 1, 5, uh, the author's already used this, uh, where Jesus is established as the supreme son of God. Remember, uh, long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to us through the prophets, but now he's spoken to us through his son, right? Uh, who, who he appointed the heir of all things. That this supreme son, our, our final word, the full and final word to humanity from God, uh, this is who Jesus is. And the author is using it again here alongside this another quotation, this new quotation, to show that the Supreme Son is also our great high priest. The Supreme Son is our, also our great high priest. Um, God calls his son, begets him from the dead on the third day, exalts him, and he becomes a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so that's the first way that Jesus became our high priest is because God appointed him. Second, uh, Jesus became our high priest because he suffered, because he suffered. Uh, just as we saw last week that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses because he also experienced weakness as a human, uh, not sinful weakness, but, but temptation and the weakness of our flesh. Uh, just like that, he can also sympathize with our suffering, with our suffering. And just as a, as a side note, what, isn't it amazing that Jesus sympathizes with us at all? Isn't it amazing? And, and if he does, if, if, he, if he, the perfect son, sympathizes with us, what should that say about how we should sympathize with each other? How much grace should we have toward each other? How much, since we're weak, how, much, how, how slow should we be to write someone off? We, we should come with grace as Jesus comes with grace to our brothers and sisters. Um, Jesus can sympathize with our suffering because he suffered himself. Uh, verse seven, if you look at it, uh, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. So this, this reminds us uh, of Jesus' whole life, but, but points us to the garden of Gethsemane, right? The, the agony of right before, the night before Jesus was betrayed and executed. Um, he, he was in distress and he cried out in agony, sweating drops of blood. Father, if at all possible, let this cup pass from me but not what I will, but what you will be done. He, he bore a weight that none of us could or, or ever will be asked to bear, the weight of God's judgment on the world. And verse eight says that he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. As we saw in chapter two, uh, where, where these same words are used, learned obedience, this doesn't mean that Jesus was lacking in some way. It doesn't mean that he was imperfect in some way, uh, but, but rather that he fulfilled his obedience, that his obedience was made complete, okay? Uh, he learned obedience, not in the sense that he was disobedient and had to learn to obey, as all of us uh, experience, but rather he had never experienced being human and obeying. So as a human, as he obeyed, he learned obedience. He learned by experience. 
his entire life, and then the experience of suffering a brutal execution. And if that's so, if, if Jesus learned obedience through suffering, what does that say about our suffering? If Jesus had to learn obedience through suffering, maybe that gives a purpose, a glimpse into God's, one of God's purposes in our various sufferings that we need to learn obedience as well. Verse 9 says he was made perfect. He, he completed his perfectly, perfectly obedient life, and we needed that. Romans 5, 19 says, For as one man's diso- by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus was able to, on the cross, receive the punishment due our disobedience. And grant us the, the acceptance of God. Do his perfect obedience. And as the text says, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He became our high priest through suffering. Through suffering. And, and this means, and I think this is cool, this means that we have currently a high priest. We have a high priest. Maybe we don't think about that ever. Right, we think of priest, priesthood, that's Old Testament stuff, that's all dead and gone, right? Which in a sense it is, but in a sense it isn't, uh, right? It, it, it's not like this author is saying, hey, to help you Jewish background Christians out there understand, here's a metaphor. Jesus is kind of like a high priest. No, he's saying he's the great high priest. He's the high priest that all these other high priests were pointing to, were a foreshadow of, were a metaphor of him. We have a high priest currently. Jesus. He's our priest forever. Right? You'll be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, which is either incredibly comforting or incredibly offensive. It's incredibly comforting or incredibly offensive. It's incredibly comforting, I think, if he's already our priest. Right? If you've trusted Jesus and he is your priest. Because he's alive for us now. Right? Like, like we sang that song, if, while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. I know if he's alive, I'm with him. Right? Like Romans 8.34 says, who is to condemn? Who can bring condemnation against you? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, is interceding for us. Current, present tense, right now, during the sermon, Right now, if you're asleep even, he's interceding for you. Oh, that's comforting. Very comforting. But it can also be extremely offensive, uh, especially if you haven't trusted Jesus. Uh, Because the Bible's saying that you need a priest. You need a priest. One thing I love about the Bible is that it's brutally honest with us. I I appreciate people who can just be honest and just tell you, something like it is, um, and, and the Bible is, is like that. He, it, the Bible's honest with us about ourselves. Uh, the Bible assumes and teaches, as in verse 2, that we are ignorant and wayward. Right? All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We, we've all rebelled. It says we're all weak, we're all sinful. God says that though, though he made you to love him and to honor him, that you have run from him. You've rebelled against him. You've effectively spit in his face over and over and over. Instead of honoring him and giving thanks to him, you've worshiped other gods. And God knows this. I mean, he sees. He sees you. And I really think that everyone knows this deep down. 
I think everyone knows this deep down. For, for instance, I think you all fall short of your own standard, right? We, we all fall short of our own standard. Francis Schaeffer used this illustration that I think I heard from Tim Keller, uh, where he said that imagine you have an invisible recorder around your neck. Everyone has it. Um, and the, what it records is what you say to or about other people or what you think about other people. That's all it records. Throughout your life, it's recording these things. It's, it's on constant uh, record mode. And say when you get to judgment day, you, you stand before the Lord and say that he takes that recorder off and he just plays it. And imagine that the only thing God judges you on is your standard for other people. So if you said, I can't believe that person would do that, then God would then judge, say, well, did you ever do that, right? Judge you by your standard that you hold other people to. How would you fare in that judgment? Right? Not well, I don't think. I don't think I would, right? It's, I mean, it, even in the little things, you could see somebody cuts you off. Oh, what an idiot. How are they cutting me off? And then you cut someone else off, they honk. You're like, oh, gosh, what's the big deal? Like, I just didn't see you there. <laughs> right? Same thing, but you cut yourself some slack. You're a little hard on other people. Of course, we would fall short of our own standards, our own moral standard. And if we just fall short of our own moral standard, how much farther short would we fall of a perfect God's moral standard? Much more. We need a priest, someone who can atone for our sins. Notice in verse 9, the article, the word the. Jesus isn't a source of eternal salvation. He's the source, the source of eternal salvation. Just as the Bible's honest about us and our state and our our sinfulness, our need for a priest, uh, it's honest about the way to God. The consistent teaching of the Bible and of the Christian church throughout the ages is that there is no other source. He is the source of eternal salvation. Like Peter says in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else. As Jesus says himself in John 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The reformers, uh, as the reformers claim, solus Christus, Christ alone. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And, and to say, and many people will say, that's so arrogant to claim one way to God. How would you do that? Why would you do that? It's, it's so intolerant. And, and I understand what people are saying there. Um, but I think to say that is just to be ignorant of the fact that every truth claim is exclusive. Every truth claim excludes Okay? To claim that all religions lead to God or that there is no God is actually itself an exclusive truth claim. Right? In fact, it's one that excludes most of the people who've ever lived in the world. Most people alive today, it excludes them. If you claim that all, for instance, that all religions lead to God, that's a faith-based claim. Right? You can't empirically prove that. Uh, which leads you to say that those people who agree with you you know, are inclusive and good, and, and they're right. And the, the people who disagree with you, like those who claim that there's only one God, are wrong. There's a right and there's wrong, right? So you're excluding people. It's, exclu- it's exclusive. So the accusation of just inherent arrogance, if you make a truth claim, that's inherently arrogant. It's just a ruse, right? It's just a ruse. Everyone's making exclusive truth claims, and that's okay. We should. We should make it. The, the thing we should do is get down to the claims. Are they true? Right? We should think, let's look at the claims. Are they actually true? Which is the best? Which is the best truth claim? Which is the most true? 
And I believe that Christianity actually leads to true tolerance and is as wide and accepting as any truth claim comes because look at who eternal salvation is offered to in verse 9. Source of eternal salvation to all, all who obey him. All right? So don't, don't get caught up on the word obey. Um, this is not talking about salvation by works. Uh, you cannot work your way to God. In Hebrews, obedience is, is closely linked to belief. Like, for instance, in the last two verses of Hebrews 3, uh, the author calls Israel's disobedience unbelief. He says they were unable to enter the, God's rest because of disobedience. The next verse, which is unbelief. Right? So if you trust God, you'll obey him. If you don't trust God, you won't obey him. All right, so, but look at who this offers to, eternal salvation for all who trust and obey Jesus. That's so wide. You can come, anyone. Right? Any, if you're hearing this, you, Jesus is inviting you to come. Come to him. Why would you wait? Why wouldn't you want, isn't this good news? You can have a priest atone for your sins. You need a high priest. You need someone who can go for you before God and pay for your sins. And there's only one person in the universe who can do that. The one high priest appointed by God to atone for the sins of the people, Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest. He's the one who comes and offers, as we'll see, continue to see in Hebrews, not sacrifice day after day in the temple, week after week, year after year, but the one who offered one sacrifice, the final sacrifice, once for all, the sacrifice of himself. He willingly laid down his life for you, and he rose from the dead, and so he became our priest forever. And, and this, is, this is love. <laughs> this is the heart of the gospel. This is our only hope. The Lord Jesus. We've seen what a high priest is. We've seen how Jesus became our high priest. Now, uh, a warning, a sober warning. At the end of verse 10, uh, the author mentions that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, coming from that quote in Psalm 110, verse 4. Uh, and, and we'll see more about what, what that means, Melchizedek, right? By the way, if, if you're looking for baby names, Melchizedek is a biblical name. It's there. Put it on your list. Uh, maybe your, your, uh, your next little boy. Um, call him Mel. I don't know. Uh, but So we'll see more about Melchizedek in the, in the coming uh, weeks, especially chapter 7 is all about Melchizedek and that priesthood. Um, he was uh, the king and priest of Salem that we read about in uh, first in Genesis 14, who came and met Abraham after a battle and blessed him and took tithes from him. Uh, he's a priest of a different order than that of the Levitical priesthood, which is important. Um, for those of you Lord of the Rings fans, he's, he's got a little uh, Tom Bombadil to him. There's some parallels there. If you're Lord of the, if you're not, you're like, what? You? Just don't worry about it. But I'll plant that seed um, for you if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. Uh, but in all this about Melchizedek is important. Uh, but we have to leave it. We have to leave it here because the chapter does, right? The, the chapter does. This discussion when he when he when the writer brings up the order of Melchizedek, he stops. It's an abrupt halt, change of direction for his original readers, and the change of direction. Uh, therefore, for us. And so let's, let's read it again in verse 11, and we'll follow his, uh, his teaching. About this, we have much to say about the order of Melchizedek, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone else to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. He says, I'd like to talk more about this, uh, but it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. Right? That dull of hearing, that's an idiom that's literally lazy to the ear. So it's, it's, uh, it's not just like something that happens, but it happens by laziness. It has a slothful connotation. Uh, so, so these Christians weren't always this way, but they are now through laziness. They've grown dull. He says, you, you've been Christians long enough to be teaching this stuff, but you need someone else to sit down and explain the basics to you again. You're spiritually immature. He says, you're like big babies who should be eating solid food, but you're still nursing on milk. My son Jones uh, is 14 month, months old, uh, and so he's making and has pretty much made the transition from, uh, from milk to solid food. Uh, and there's, you know, there's all these rules I break if, you know, he'll be choking, and my wife's like, why did you give him a whole carrot? I'm like, I'm sorry, I forgot. Um, but but there's, there's a progression for kids, right? There's a progression for kids. Uh, that is expected, right? If you go to the grocery store, uh, you see clearly delineated sections of formula for infants, right? And then there's that rice cereal mush stuff that doesn't taste like anything. And then there's, uh, you know, the baby food puree that is gross. And then there's, uh, you know, these those little puffy things that, you know, when they start to pick up their food that smell really good, they smell delicious. They're not. Apparently, I eat all the baby food. Um, uh, but, so, so there's, but there's these clear delineations, right, of, of uh, growth. And we expect children to graduate from milk to solid food. Maturity requires leaving the milk-only diet and moving to solid food. And in the same way, spiritual maturity requires leaving the basics-only diet and moving to learning and obeying Christian doctrine. God didn't save you to be a little spiritual infant forever, right? Infants are awesome. I have a new nephew, and he's awesome. I love him. But if he, in five years he's still drinking you know, formula, that's going to be a problem, right? He needs to grow up. Uh, immature children, here in verse 13, uh, they, they are unskilled in the word of righteousness, it says. Unskilled in the word of righteousness. So they haven't taken the gospel, right? The, the message, the word of righteousness, the message that we have been made righteous in Christ and, and with skill applied it in their lives. They aren't obeying God in real life. They, they can't tell you what Jesus has to do with their love life or with their finances or with their education or with their leisure or with their friendships. They don't think about God much except maybe on Sundays. They repost scripture memes on Facebook, but never obey the God who wrote scripture. And here's the scary thing for me, and maybe for many of us in here. Some of us have been around the church for so long that we may not realize what has happened. If, if I can be just a little bit honest with you, uh, I, I was, God saved me when I was four years old. I was little. And, and I never left. I grew up in the church. I'm a church kid to the core. And you know what that means? That means that no matter how cold my heart is to the Lord, no matter how stalled out or stagnant my Christianity has become, I can always say something impressive in a Bible study. 
Isn't that scary? Maybe this warning is most urgent for us who've been here the longest. Has your Christianity stalled out? Have you slipped back to infancy, not growing in your knowledge, your love, and obedience to God, but instead just coasting along? You don't realize how far you've drifted. You've lost spiritual interest, that the Bible isn't alive to you, directing your day. You aren't praying. Jesus and his gospel don't warm your heart like they used to. Is that you? If it is, you don't have to stay that way. Just like we want our kids to mature, we want them to grow, so God wants his kids to mature and grow, and he will help us. Look at verse 14. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Children have a lot of trouble telling right from wrong, don't they? Isn't that why we're always saying, don't do that, do that. Don't, you can't say those words. Yes, you can say those. We're always telling these things. They, they don't know. They're not mature, right? Uh, and... and And so mature Christians are those who are skilled in the word of righteousness, who who so know and apply the scripture to their lives that they can see nuance and they can see good and evil and they can say, this is pleasing the Lord. This is not in this situation that's complex. Notice maturity isn't primarily about knowledge. That's what we all think. That's our default. It's not primarily about what you know. It's not about knowledge. It's about obedience, Right? Uh, you, they've had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. They live in this, this arena of practicing, of doing these things, of, of obeying the Lord. Mature Christians are mature, not because they know a lot, but because they're battle-tested. It's difficult to live in this world and follow Jesus, isn't it? It's difficult. It's not easy. There's so many things that we don't understand. So many things unexpectedly come at us. We need mature Christians who can walk the courageous and narrow path of following Jesus through the challenges, the temptations, the hardships, and who can teach others to do the same. I need that from you. I need to go, I'm going through this thing. I have no idea what to do, and I need someone to go, I went through that. I've been through that. Here, come on, let's go. I'll I'll show you. This is what God wants from us, maturity. And, And Honestly, this is what I see in our church body so often. When, when one of you asks me to pray for you because you're in a situation of conflict with someone else and you say, I know my battle is not against flesh and blood. This, this person is not my enemy, so please pray. I'd remember that so I could love them even through this conflict. Man, spiritual maturity. When, when I see you using your skill and your time, not for your own good, not for your own benefit, but just to genuinely help and bless someone else, See you demonstrating maturity. It's awesome. When I, when I hear stories of you evangelizing your coworker at lunch, that's awesome. Well, you're growing in the Lord right there. Uh, you're being obedient to him. When I see you holding on to God's promises through losing your job, through a miscarriage, through an illness, through a death in the family, I just see God's grace and, and growing spiritual maturity. He's, he's growing you. Brothers and sisters, since we have a great high priest who is alive right now, who sympathizes with our weaknesses and our suffering, who is obedient to death and is the source of our eternal salvation now, let's press on to maturity.
Let's not be lazy about obedience. Despite what I tell my children uh, on a regular basis, I, I re- don't really want them to stay little forever. Okay, I want them to grow up into mature adults. And in fact, there's nothing that makes me happier than, than seeing them take that next developmental step or, or uh, conquer a new challenge that shows they're growing. Right? That, that makes me so happy to see them grow like that. I love to see my children grow. And, and if I, a flawed and sinful earthly father, Rejoice in the growth in my children. How much more will our Father, our perfect Heavenly Father, rejoice in our growth? So let's grow up to maturity in all that God has for us until we, by grace, reach, as Paul says in Ephesians, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.